Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Day three of the 2022 Ocean Exploration Forum from Austin, Texas. Tyler, a fantastic conference we've had the privilege of attending this week. I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose this week. Lots of information, lots of sidebar conversations, lots of breakout sessions, lots of writing things on the board and trying to come up with consensus but man, this is how the sausage is made, and it's been a real—it's been a real honor to be here. It has been, and we're going to take a broad overview of this event with one of the key participants and one of the sponsors of this event, Dr. James Austin, a research scientist from the University of Texas Jackson School of Geosciences, and uh, Dr. Austin has been one of the key players in the development of ocean exploration in the United States over the past 25 years, so we're really looking forward to talking to him today. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, it's great to have you here, Dr. Austin. Let's just start with a little bit about you. Can you tell us about where you're from, how you became involved initially in ocean exploration? Sure. Um, I, I grew up in the Northeast. I've spent most of my life here in Texas, but I'm a New York City guy. Um, I My father was a banker and a lawyer in the city, and uh, the furthest thing from his mind when I was growing up is that I would end up as an ocean scientist. I, I think he thought I might end up in a university somewhere, and that worked out for him. But I was always I was brought up near the ocean. Uh, I fell in love with the ocean early on, and pretty early I said to myself, I want to study the Earth. So this was uh, this was a global aspiration for me, and I and that aspiration's been achieved. I've been able to do pretty much what I envisioned when I was a child. Must be very satisfying to pick a career field and then see it through. At this point in your career. Tell us what you're working on this. What is your focus these days in your professional career? You know, I, I'm, I'm transitioning. I've been, this is my 44th year at the Institute for Geophysics, which is part of the Jackson School. I am 70 years old. Um, so I started in the Jackson School when I was 27. Uh, I've been a full-time research person my whole life. I've gotten a number of students through their master's and PhD degrees. I've spent more than four years of my life on research cruises, 30 different research vessels. Um, I'm backing off a bit now, and that's where, in part, that's part of the reason that I'm here. I am a part-time program manager with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Office of uh, Ocean Exploration and Research. Outstanding. Tell us about, introduce our audience, if you would, to the Jackson School of Geosciences. Well, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, geosciences uh, uh, schools in the world. Um, it's composed of three units, the Department of Geological Sciences, the Institute for Geophysics, where I hang my hat, and the Bureau of Economic Geology, which is essentially the State Geological Survey. We've got about 180 PhD scientists, hundreds of graduate students and undergraduates. We've got physical housing in multiple buildings here on the main campus at UT Austin, and I hang my hat out at the Pickle Research Campus, which is about seven miles north of here. Right. Well, one of the things that uh, we've been talking a lot about is visioning forward here to 2032 at the National Ocean Exploration Forum this year. 
uh, but you have a deep history of ocean exploration. I would just be, I would love to hear kind of what it was like in the early days. I mean, the technology was different. The, the, the state of understanding was different. Can you kind of take us back to your, your early, maybe your first cruise and, and what, you, what it is that you were studying? Well, in, in ocean exploration, I've been involved for about 18 years. Um, I had the great privilege, and both of them have been here at the forum, uh, Robert Ballard, who was the scientist who found the Titanic and has a, you know, Bob is 80 years old, he's a force of nature, he's still doing his thing. Yeah. Um, and Larry Mayer, who is one of the global leaders in ocean mapping, is, has been here. He's head of the Coastal Center for Ocean Mapping at the University of New Hampshire. I started with them in advice. I had the privilege of running expeditions on both the dedicated ocean exploration vessels, Bob Ballard's Nautilus, and the NOAA vessel Okeanos Explorer. I've been with them in the Mediterranean, looking at Roman amphora on the seafloor north of the Nile River Delta. I've been in the Gulf of Mexico, looking at methane seeps and, and, and the fantastic diversity of life in the Gulf of Mexico, and, um, and in the Pacific. So I've, I've, I've been really, really fortunate. We've always been ship-centered, and when we talk about platforms, we generally mean ships, and that's what we did. Robert Ballard, pioneered the concept and the practice of telepresence, which was the idea that we could have satellite connectivity from the ship directly to the shore and talk to adults and kids as we were exploring the seafloor. Now we're entering a revolution. Platforms now are not just ships, but they're autonomous vehicles, and, and we are, are quickening the pace of our exploration because we can deploy so much diverse technology. That's been the big transition over the last 18 years. I just want to take a moment to talk about uh, Dr. Robert Ballard, uh, sure. a hero of mine. Peter, I think maybe a hero of yours. I actually brought his book to have him sign, and I'm very extremely stoked that I got that done. Um, could size him up in terms of the importance of ocean exploration. I, I, he's a force of nature, uh, and I don't use that term lightly. Uh, he is a, a pioneer in the truest sense of the word. He started his career as a dolphin trainer in Hawaii, um, uh, didn't envision that he would become an ocean scientist, and he, and he, and he didn't do that initially. He came through um, as, as, a, as an officer in the Navy and the U.S. Naval Reserve, uh, but in that he got involved in deep submergence. So that's how he got involved with the deep submergence vehicle Alvin. Uh, I met him as a first-year graduate student at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in 1974. He was a graduate student at the University of Rhode Island, but he was detailed by the Navy to work with Alvin at Woods Hole. And those were the early days. You know, we hear about, uh, it's often said, conferences like this, that we know so little about the ocean. We know more about the surface of the moon. We know more about Mars. Is that an exaggeration? Or because it seems like in your career over the last 25 plus years, that ocean exploration has been a focus around the world. Is it, what is the state of knowledge? How would you characterize our understanding of the ocean at this point there. My the guess is that the average American knows much more about the surface of Mars from looking at the mosaic photographs from the rovers that we have so successfully deployed there mm -hmm. than, than that person knows about the seafloor around the world. We debate a bit about how well we know the ups and downs, the rivers and or the valleys and uh, highs on the seafloor. We're making progress. I would say that about 20.6% as of today of that seafloor has been mapped to some degree of resolution, but it's nowhere near the resolution of those photos you see on those rovers of Mars. 
and we know virtually nothing about the water column. And most of the biology of the planet lives in that water column. Interesting. Um, 70% of the planet, right, covered with the Earth. I've heard this at the conference, the discussion of the water column and the exploration of the water column. It seems interesting. Um, can you tell us why that's important? Why is it that we need to understand, study, and appreciate what's going on in the water column? If you, if you think of a human body, the heart keeps us going. It pumps, it pumps the blood that keeps us going. The water column of the oceans is equivalent to the heart of the planet. The water moves around, it sustains all of the biology, much of which we know, but most of which we don't. Uh, the photosynthesis that the unicellular organisms, we know about photosynthesis on plants on land, but believe me, uh, in addition to being the heart, the oceans are also the lungs of the planet. We simply can't because if the oceans weren't functioning normally, the atmosphere would not be sustained, and without the atmosphere, humans would not be sustained. So knowledge of the oceans, knowledge of how complicated they are, of the biology contained, of the currents, of the ocean-atmosphere interactions, are crucial to the history of humanity. And, and it's fun. It's fun. The wonder of it is fun. Every time I see a mosaic of the, of, of the Mars surface, I just gape in wonder. Yeah. But every time I look through a video camera at the surface of the seafloor or, or, or an organism in the water column, I feel the same way. It really is a, a fascinating challenge because, you know, you can orbit, we can, we have a, the technology now to orbit a satellite around the planet of Mars or around the moon and we can image it from that orbit. But with the ocean, we are much more limited. We can go to some shallow depths with satellite imagery, but the, the, the vast majority of it, uh, we actually have to go there. We have to send either an autonomous vehicle, an ROV, or a real human in a submarine, you got to go down in perhaps the most submarine, uh, famous submarine, research submarine uh, ever, Alvin. I've, I've always been obsessed with Alvin since I was a little kid. Could you tell me a little bit about what it's like to uh, work inside Alvin and operate it? Well, yeah, I only got a chance to go down in, in it once, so I too have envy for people who've gone down in it a lot. Yeah, as, as incredible as it is to be in in a what we call a submersible near the seafloor, your view is very limited. You've got a few ports. You're looking out through those ports. We are victims of being visual light people. We have to be able to light up what we look at or our eyes do not function. And our ability to bring light down into the depths of the ocean is limited. One of the reasons we've transitioned from what we call human-occupied vehicles like Alvin to remotely operated vehicles is that we can bring through our umbilicals from the ship an unlimited amount of light to the system. Even so, as ROVs move slowly at walking pace or less across a piece of seafloor, we're not seeing very much or very far. It's like Frogger, Tyler. You remember Frogger? Absolutely. The video game where there was a little light in front of your guy and you had to, you could only see so far. <laughs> it's a flashlight. It's a flashlight yeah. walking down a dark path at night. Yeah. You know, you're as good as your ability to light up what's in front of you or to the sides. Right. And we've all walked down a dark path at night and, and flipped our, sea, or our flashlight forward and then to the side. You're always worried about what you're not illuminating. Yeah. Um, and, and th but the ocean's the same way. We're constantly being surprised when we light up things. The problem with visual light in the oceans is that the organisms we're illuminating are not used to that light. Right. And we're, there is active research now on whether the very light we bring to our task of studying them actually harms them. 
and harms the ecosystem. So we have to worry about that. We're starting to think about other ways of, of studying these organisms because those ecosystems are crucial to life on land. Most humans don't get that, but that's absolutely true. Fascinating. What, over your career in ocean science, can you tell us what has been one of the most remarkable developments in the capacity to research the deep ocean or ocean exploration generally? Uh, what stands out in your in your Well, career? it's what I said. I think it's the transition from from an, a submersible like Alvin, as wonderful it was. It was 60s technology. Now we are diversifying our ability to view both the seafloor and the water with autonomous vehicles, with remotely operated vehicles. The ocean sciences are, are the recipients of some of the smartest engineering in the world. And it's not just engineering within... Uh, private institutions like Woods Hole or universities, a lot of companies now for a variety of applications are applying their brain power to, to uh, this new technology, and it is it completely revolutionizing our view. Uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is the future, you know, that we, we are, we're moving away from the manned uh, dive to these incredible robots that are ex going to be exploring, that are currently exploring and, and the oceans, and, and there will be more and more of them. That's one of the things we've been talking about at this forum. And uh, But when we before the show, we were talking about just this human uh, desire to, be, to explore our universe. And I do worry a little bit that all of these deployed sensors take take the take that exploration out of it a little bit is that am i wrong no i think one of the challenges we face and this was why dr ballard initially deployed telepresence we wanted to give someone sitting at home in their living room or on their bed at night with their laptop a sense of immediacy a sense of being there uh, how few, how many of us will go to mars virtually none of us but but the rovers have given us a sense of immediacy that I think has translated for the public. I think we're fascinated every time we see that. We have got to continue to do that in the oceans. We've got to make the oceans live for people who will never sail on or dive in the oceans. I'm very excited about it. I think the technology has stayed ahead. The excitement is there. Um, and I think young people, I, when I was on the two ships fielding questions in real time about the seafloor, one of the most exciting things was that most of these questions were from young people. Yeah. So. When you uh, think about the necessity of ocean exploration, and, and we're, we're here at the conference looking at tr uh, a strategy to expand and plan ocean exploration over the next decade, uh, we're ca calling for the conference uh, participants, calling for substantial federal investment in ocean exploration. Why is it important to the American people? Why is it important to taxpayers that this work be funded? Well, I think, I think the federal government has and always will play a leading role because they can get together. We've been talking about stakeholding and partnerships at this meeting. All of these various entities that study the oceans in one form or another have diverse sets of goals and objectives. Well, the federal government can, can put an umbrella up over that and say, let's all try to work together. I think that's why the, the federal government is so important. Federal government functions from taxpayer dollars. I think it is very important for scientists who normally talk to each other. This is what we, this is what we do. And the majority of people at this meeting are talking to each other. Yes. I think one of our great challenges and our tasks, something I look forward to, is exactly what we're doing right now. Reaching out to other people who don't think about this every day, who are not excited about it every day, yeah. and make them excited about it because it is exciting. 
I'm a scientist, but I'm also a human being living on a small blue ball in the universe. And it's, it's up to every human being to take care of that blue ball. The oceans are a key to that. Wow. I couldn't agree with you more. I, Tyler and I talk about this all the time. We do attend a lot of the professional conferences in ocean and coastal affairs. And uh, you do realize when you're at these events that these are the experts. These are the smartest people. This is the most interesting conversation on the topic. And yet we're all by ourselves. We're talking to each other. And part of our initiative on Coastal News Today and part of our initiative on this podcast is really to bring people into these meetings because this is, I agree with you, absolutely, it's thrilling, it's exciting, it's an amazing collection of people who've dedicated their careers to this topic. And uh, it's it's important that the American public understand it. So I really I can't tell you we really echo that. uh, Well, I mean, to me, it's more than a career now to me. It's a mission. I, I think as I, as I enter the, the latter stages of my career, I, I am obsessed with giving back. I am obsessed to ma- with making this bigger than it has been for my career. It's sustained me. I've been excited about it. But that simply now is not enough. I think all scientists now must see their roles in part as giving back. We've been sustained by taxpayer dollars. We've been sustained by universities. Yes, we've trained students. Those students are going out. There are emissaries. Uh, but we've simply got now to reach through those structures and, and get back to the public, thank the public for the dollars they give us, but inform them so that they will feel comfortable about it. Uh, one of the things we cover a lot on this show is the new blue economy and this, the emergence, the explosion of uh, potential economic activity happening on the ocean with offshore wind, aquaculture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed is that we don't have uh, representatives from those groups here at this forum per se. Uh, and that concerns me a little bit. I, when I was going to bed last night, I was thinking, man, I wish that we could talk to a deep sea mining uh, interest here. And Well, that- Hans, Hans Schmidt, one of the big deep sea miners, is here. has been here. Okay, well, I need, so- to, I need to meet that oh. person. Um, but uh, And we, we should probably do a show with that person, Peter. Uh, that would be really wonderful because... Uh, what I want to ask is, what are the what are the big threats here to to ocean exploration? Not only from a funding perspective and an investment perspective, but also from a kind of social uh, willingness perspective and interest. Well, let me let me just first correct the record a little bit about the blue economy. The blue economy is an umbrella over all of the pieces of of the human ocean interaction that generate uh, generate income. Tourism is one of the biggest. So every time you get on a beach, you're part of the blue economy. Every time you get on a cruise ship, you're part of the blue economy. Every time you get on a ferry across a coastal waterway, you're part of the blue economy. And a lot of uh, the people that are listening to this podcast have done that. Every time uh, there are enormous numbers of products that have got bases in things like seaweed, that's part of the blue economy. So ocean mining, oil and gas, yes, they're the extractive pieces of the blue economy. And the term now, the key to the term is that we want to somehow get an umbrella over all those diverse activities that involve an enormous number of people, tens of billions of dollars in the U.S. every, every year, yep. and, and, and make that sustainable. That is an enormous task. We've got to extract from the oceans, yes, but we've got to understand the ecosystems and figure out ways to keep the oceans going for us. We ask a lot of our uh, coastal waters. We ask a lot of our ocean resources. Uh, you know, I often thought when I went to school in Galveston, that waterway, Galveston Bay, was a superhighway into the port of Houston. So it was a transportation corridor 
It was also a recreational resource for people in the same place. It was a farming area. There were oyster reefs and commercial fishing going on in the same space. Absolutely. It was as if you were planting on the median of, a, of an uh, interstate highway going across America. Those are just three of the resources that were uh, of critical importance and part of the blue economy. And I can't agree with you more. The effort has got to be to understand the interplay of these activities and the natural systems that sustain them. How close are we to doing a better job uh, in in this management of coastal resources in your view? I think, I think uh, w not enough. I, I think most humans take the oceans for granted when they go to the beach. I, I, I lived yeah. in Galveston for three and a half years. Yeah. A lot of people came down from Houston and partied on the beaches in Galveston and left behind their beer cans and their trash. A lot of it on the beaches. So we spent a couple of days as a municipality, Monday and Tuesday, every week, cleaning up. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't think we can continue to have that attitude about the oceans. I think we should see them as a gift to us and, and, and treat them that way. You know, one of the biggest industries that's being discussed internationally right now is deep seabed mining. Uh, the Cook Islands have in, uh, released in the last month the first commercial leasing opportunity out there. The International Seabed Authority out of Jamaica, United Nations institution, is being criticized about the, uh, the readiness of the rules and the regulatory structure governing deep sea mining. As a as an ocean scientist, is this a step we should take, and how concerned are you about the development of this new industry? Well, what, one of the one of the things we've learned, most of the uh, the targets of ocean mining are, are something we call manganese nodules, um, in very very deep waters. Uh, a lot of them in the Pacific. We're talking about water depths on the order of five thousand meters. That's over fifteen thousand feet. Yeah. That environment isn't that easy to get to. Number one, so it's expensive to think about doing this to begin with. The companies that are interested in doing this uh, have a, a valuable goal in mind, manganese nodules. They're something like a million tons of cobalt in the first lease that they're talking about, the Cook Islands are talking about uh, letting yeah. out. One of the representatives of the company that is interested in doing that has been at this forum. They are worried about the degree to which they are going to impact this environment that we know very, very little about. It takes thousands, if not millions of years, probably millions of years for yeah. these manganese nodules to form. Yeah. And we can, we can harvest them relatively rapidly, but we don't know what we're doing to the environment surrounding those nodules when we do it. Now, the company's aware of this. They're going to be, they're bringing a ship down to the Cook Islands for the next three or four years, and they're going to be spending a lot of their time doing environmental assessments of these nodules before they're ever going to be given a lease. So it, it's, it's good for us to be cautious. And I have to say, I, I did not know that uh, that interest was here, and I am just so happy that they are because, you know, that's, the, that's the, perhaps the coolest thing about uh, the, the new blue economy concept is that we are operating in this, the ocean is essential for life on earth. It's also a public space. It is, it is collective, it, we're, we are all, every, every human being on the planet has a stake in the ocean. And so, man, it's good to hear that this operator is wanting to do it right and study it and make sure that there aren't irrevocable uh, damages to our ocean resources brought by doing this or doing it wrong are you uh, are you in favor of the development of deep sea ocean mining is it that simple a question is that a possible question well it's a little bit like saying uh yeah what 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 if we were not to do it 
Um, uh, you've heard of the the uh, one of the minerals that I talked about, one of the elements that I talked about, cobalt. Yeah. Advanced society is very much predicated on having these types of, of materials. Yeah. Uh, electric vehicles, uh, everybody's mobile phones. Now, if we were really good at recycling all of our technology, we would probably have less of a need for uh, for some of these new resources. But let's be honest, the Earth has a limited amount of everything. And as the number of humans on the planet get bigger and bigger, our demand for these types of technologies, mobile phones, electric vehicles. So at one level, you could say electric vehicles are good. We're going to wean ourselves off oil and gas. But as we build those millions and eventually billions of batteries for these types of forms of transportation, we are putting other loads on the system. Humans just have to be aware that there is no free lunch. No, not at all. And advanced society uh, takes its toll. If we're aware of it, we can mitigate it. Climate is the same way. We are changing the Earth's climate. If we're aware of it, and we increasingly are, we can mitigate it, but we're not going to stop it. Let's talk a little bit about the Ocean Exploration Forum. We're at the beginning uh, of day three of the event. We're coming to the close soon. Uh, how has the conference gone in your, uh, you've been emceeing many of the presentations in the plenary sessions, which has been outstanding. Uh, talk to us about the conference and how you think it's gone so far. Well, it's taken us about a year to get about 100 people here. And uh, all of you who've lived through the pandemic know that uh, yeah. it hasn't been easy to think about physical meetings. I think it's been overwhelmingly positive from that point of view alone. People are enthusiastic about being here in 3D, drinking real coffee with real colleagues. Yeah. And I think that has, Amen. that has leaned, uh, that has lent a lot of enthusiasm to what we're doing. I think we have the right mix of people here. Ocean exploration is a diverse, complicated array of human endeavor. We've got company people here. We've got representatives from private philanthropy here. Uh, we've got university people here. Uh, so I think we've got the right mix. Uh, our challenge begins this afternoon and tomorrow when we be begin to put the report together. But as I said to one of the groups, one of the plenaries the other day, I think we have a, a we society, we have a, a really golden opportunity here. The federal government is, is looking at the oceans all of a sudden and going, wow, we've got to do things. Mm -hmm. Climate, it will be a big driver. We, we do have to understand that we are impacting climate. We've got to mitigate that. The oceans are a huge part of that. Um, and so understanding will flow, I think, from resources that we hope to generate from this forum. I'm very excited. Uh, this is a question I like to do, Peter, from time to time. Uh, I'm going to grant you a, a magic lamp, <laughs> and you're going to get three wishes. They have the ocean exploration-oriented wishes, and you can snap your fingers and accomplish three things. What would they be? First, resources. The technology we deploy, the people we employ, are, the storytelling we want to do about what we do so we can reach the public, none of that is free. So one of, my first, one of my first snapping the fingers would be, if I need resources, I can get them, whatever they are. It might be people resources, it, certainly money resources, recognition resources. So people like yourselves coming to us and saying, we want you to tell us your story. The second would be, finding the people that can help us sell. So, so I don't think scientists are particularly good at selling except to each other. We're really good at that. Yep. Uh, you, we've heard the word silo. Somebody else have called them cylinders of excellence. 
I like that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 and I've been that way myself. I mean, I talk mostly to my colleagues. I feel very good most of the time that I'm selling my story to my colleagues. But now, in the 21st century, it's nowhere near enough. We've got to sell it to people in elevators. We've got to sell it to people in bars. We've got to sell it to people who don't care about the oceans on a daily basis and make them believe that what we're doing is important and make them believe that what we're doing is important to them. And number three would be, if I want to make a measurement and, and I, if I envision a measurement, I would want the tool and the techniques for that measurement to be instantaneously at my fingertips. So if I need to measure temperature in the deep ocean, I would want to have that tool. If I want infinite illumination of larger areas of the seafloor, I would like to be able to do that. That would be, if I had those three things, um, boy, I could, I could go on as a happy man. That sort of seems like the outline of the forum's report right there. Uh, we might more, be a decade away. We may, <laughs> resources, people to tell the story, tools and techniques to understand the ocean. I want to talk about climate change a little bit. And, uh, and I think this idea of communicating what's going on in ocean exploration to the public is absolutely uh, imperative facing the challenge of climate change and the role of the ocean in terms of, yeah, of what it can do to help offset climate change, but the impacts of what we're doing in the coastal system especially. Uh, I like to say that scientists count things. That's People object to the science sometimes. They don't like to hear the conclusions. But basically what scientists do is they go out in the world and they measure and count things around them. They look for changes in those systems, and then they try to offer an explanation of what is happening. It is a neutral profession in that sense. Science is about knowledge and understanding. The implications of what will be learned about the ocean for climate is going to have political and social implications of mass proportions. We already understand that. It's my sense that the scientists need to be able to enter into the public dialogue in a more forceful way. Um, can you talk about this idea that the scientific community needs to come out of the silos, come out of its own insular communities into the public in a better way? Is that something that can happen? How do we do that? Well, we have some scientists who are pretty good storytellers. Yeah. I mean, Bob Ballard, Ballard. for example, is a classic case he of is. that. We have others. Uh, I, 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 so I don't think it's hopeless from just the science perspective alone. No. Um, and we are searching actively now. I'm on advisory boards of a number of scientific entities, and we work, work really hard to get scientifically trained people to tell stories well. Yeah. And we've got good coaches now that help them do that. The younger generation, and as I said, I'm part of one of the biggest geoscience efforts in the country. Younger people want to do that too. They know that we're, uh, we're the time the clock is ticking. They want to learn to tell stories. And um, th that's another piece of it. So um, we're, we're making progress. I don't think we're making progress fast enough. And as you say, the social and economic impacts of what we're doing uh, to the planet are will be profound. There, be, it's yeah. already happening. Well, there is a tendency in America, and it's particularly these days, to, uh, to look away from the facts and to try to sidestep complex and difficult issues if the information is not to our liking. And I, that's why I think it's critically important that the ocean exploration community and scientists are able to participate. I'm so glad to hear of the efforts to bring scientific uh, dialogue into the public sphere. We're big believers in it. We're really happy to have uh, a chance to talk to you about that today. Well, I'm really, I, I, I think it's one of the most important 
pieces that will come out of the report of this forum. I think storytelling, based on the on the data we collect and the and the the methodologies we develop, is one of the biggest biggest uh, uh, forward looks that we can make. And having the resources to put the products together that go along with those stories, the videos we collect of the seafloor, the organisms we view in the water column are truly fascinating. Yes. And if we can't bring that to the public, it's our fault. The public will be fascinated. I've been fascinated from the beginning. When I look at a piece of seafloor I have never seen before, wonder is the only word that can describe it. And I'm trained for this. Uh, and so we have got to be able to translate that for the public or it's our fault and we don't deserve taxpayer dollars. Outstanding last words, ladies and gentlemen. It is Dr. James Austin, the one of the senior research scientists at the UT Jackson School of Geosciences, a founder of this 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 scientific research. We're so happy to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank it, you it's been a great time. pleasure, and thank you too for what you're doing for uh, for bringing our stories to the public. We need that. Thank you much. Beaches accepted in the hotels My father's and mine was you Birds on the lawn, sun 